Before we start this episode, I thought I'd tell you that I've got a new book out. Yes, another one. This one is to help coaches supercharge their coaching capability through reflective journaling. Coaching Journal, a guide and journal, walks you through the process by, well, providing you with a guide and some structured reflective models. So pop over to Amazon and get this quick, practical and insightful book today to start your journey towards a more successful professional practice. What would you put in your backpack if you had a new coaching engagement but could only take a limited number of items? Each episode, The Coach's Backpack looks at the multifaceted world of coaching and asks a new guest to tell us what they would take with them and why. Hello, I'm David Lowe. Hi, I'm Amelia Lowe. And this week, we're taking a peek inside the backpack of Emma Barnett, dog coach as I know her, but dog behaviourist and trainer from So Help Me Dog. Welcome, Emma. Thank you very much. Okay, so the first challenge for you is how do you describe what you do in under 20 words? I have a deep concern that this might come across as really poncy, and I really don't want it to. But I think that I try and help owners understand what their dog needs in order to be happy. Because if you have a happy dog, you have a happy owner. Most of the time, Dogs are struggling with some aspect of their life, which leads to the behavioural problems. If we can sort the dog out and get the dog happy, the owner, as far as they're concerned, all the problems disappear. And there's sometimes just a disconnect and I'm there to just connect it. Okay, brilliant. And we should, we should. 20. It was not 20, but we'll let him off, I think. If you want it in 20, I can do it in 20. I will do it in 20. I help owners understand what their dog needs to be happy because a happy dog means a happy owner. Perfectly 20. You were counting? Well, you can't. I couldn't count that fast. Amelia's too fast. I haven't got enough fingers on my hands and I've got my socks on, so I couldn't use my toes. Yeah, so that never happens. Uh, and we should add that Truffle, our dog, has had the power of Emma and is a wonderful dog. I think I think you had quite a good start point with him anyway because he's... Hours, but I had a really good start point with Truffle. Uh, so I should add that Amelia Lowe is my co-host because Amelia is dog mad. Also, I have a job that's a dog walker. Oh, yes. So here is the concept, Emma. You've been asked to coach a new client, but you're limited to what you can take with you. So don't worry, you've got your essentials, your clothes, your toothbrush, your videos of Barbara Woodhouse, for anyone who's oh, old enough to know who they Lord. are. <laughs> In addition to those, you can take one book a tool, technique, concept, method, approach, or whatever you want to call it, another item of your choice, plus one person... Or an animal. ...from the past or the present to accompany you. So, Emma, what would you take with you, and why? So I'm going to start with the book, because I've really, really, really struggled with this. There are so many amazing books out there that have been written by amazing people, and they all have their own value. And I... I was, I was looking at my bookshelf and thinking, right, okay, so if I was going to recommend a client a book, I would recommend this, this and this. And they were all lovely, easy to read books that owners can pick up and put down and get some real value from them. Because sometimes owners want to learn a little bit more. And I thought, no, 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 this isn't about what we're going to do for the owner. It's what I'm going to take what I might need in my backpack. So I discounted all of those, sadly, put them to one side. And then I thought, okay, so if this was a training client, 
I'd probably want something with more learning theory and a book that has got really, really detailed breakdowns of training steps to cover all kinds of training behaviors that you might want to do. And then I thought, but what if it's not just a training problem? What if it's a behavior problem? Then I'm going to need something that deals with emotions. Then I need something that looks at neurophysiology. That's not going to cover that. And so I'm gazing at my books and then I suddenly thought, oh, why am I even hesitating about this? I've got a book called The Handbook of Applied Dog Behaviour and Training. And I am cheating because it comes in three volumes. So I'm taking all three volumes and you can't argue. Essentially, I think they would like to put it in one book, but it would be so massive you wouldn't be able to lift it up. Is that fair? Am I allowed, Amelia? Uh, Yes, you are. But there's a book called How My Dog Could Do That. And that's what I would probably take. Okay. We do need to think about having a separate podcast, maybe as a bonus of Amelia answering these questions as well. So. But I think Emma's the perfect person. Well, you can answer on dog walking. Exactly. You could do dog walking as well, Amelia, you see. So remind me of this title because it wasn't the most snappy title out of all the books I've ever read. It's the Handbook of Applied Dog Behaviour and Training. And what it does, it's written by a guy called Stephen Lindsay. But actually what it does is it does everything that I've just talked about. It's not a complete easy read. It's a little more academic, but it's still a relatively easy read compared to some other tomes that are out there. But it looks at learning theory, training practice, it looks at emotions, it looks at physiology, anatomy, biology, neuroanatomy, neurophysiology, and then it gives you a whole load of procedures and protocols. It's really bizarre because you forget that you've got the book. And I'm not the only one. I've got another colleague of mine who always says, God, yeah, I forgot I had Lindsay. And it's when you've exhausted your thought process or you think or you're stuck on something or there's something where you're thinking there's something that I'm missing and I don't know what it is you dip in and like all good books it sends you down a rabbit warren and then it makes you think outside of the box and there will be something there that you go oh I wonder if it's related to that and you usually come away with something valuable and usable and practical so It's a great, great volume of books. So we're going to intersperse this with some questions that Amelia has written for you, Emma. So are you ready for the first? I am. What is a chihuahua and a poodle cross? You want the name of it? Yeah. I would go for a chipu. Oh. So close. Tell me. Chipu. That's just a matter of pronunciation. (laughs) All right, Amelia, I've got a question for you then. Okay. What is a Havanese cross poodle called? It's a Havapoo. Oh, Havapoo. It seriously is. It seriously is. Brilliant. So what is the next item to go into your backpack? So I've chosen an approach it would be the one approach that everybody should be looking out for. If they're looking for a trainer, looking for a behaviourist. And the approach is a science-based, reward-based, force-free trainer. 
mouthful. When we're talking about dog training, we're often talking about either classical conditioning or operant conditioning. I could go down a right rabbit hole of classical conditioning. Most people know it from Pavlov's dog. Mm-hmm. Ring a bell, dog starts salivating. When we're looking at operant conditioning or instrumental conditioning, we're talking about learning. Conditioning is learning. And it's where the dog has learned, if I do this, then I get that. So if Amelia tells me to sit and I put my bottom on the floor, then I get a treat. And that treat is reinforcing the behavior. So every time we talk about training, we're talking about either reinforcing a behavior to make it stronger, or we're talking about punishing a behavior to make it stop. And then within your reinforcement and your punishment, you can either have positive reinforcement or negative reinforcement, positive punishment, and negative punishment. And the positive and negative in this sense means I add something to the environment or I take it away. So it's like your mathematical plus and minus. So an approach where you have a reward-based trainer is one who is using positive reinforcement because they are adding something pleasant to the environment, the treat. If I do this, then I get this. And that reinforcement makes the behavior more likely to happen again. Conversely, if I used positive punishment, then I would be adding something horrible to the environment. And that's where we come across all those nasty things like choke chains, slip leads, prong collars, electric shock collars, spray canisters, noise things where people will they'll say, oh, fill a plastic water bottle with stones and throw it at the dog or shake it at the dog. So it's anything that adds something horrible and basically causes fear within the dog. And that's positive punishment. And there are, sadly, trainers and behaviorists who still use those methods today. By the same degree, then we start to have our negative reinforcement. Negative reinforcement means you take something horrible away from the environment. And the problem with negative reinforcement is that you have to have the punishment there in the first place. So when we're looking at a choke chain, for instance, the dog pulls on the lead, gets strangled by the choke chain. And so that's positive punishment. Something horrible has been added to the environment. Therefore, they learn, oh, I'll walk next to my owner because I want to relieve that feeling of pain. So now we've got negative reinforcement. And of course, reinforcement makes the behavior stronger. So they learn, if I walk nicely next to my owner, I won't get strangled. But in order to learn that, they have to have the horrible experience in the first place. As a force-free trainer, we don't work with punishment, but we will use negative punishment. So that's when we're taking something pleasant away. And we'll use that in the instance of And in fact, Amelia, I'm guessing if I said this, you'll probably go, yeah, Truffle does that. You know how when some dogs sit down, their back leg kind of flops open all casual-like? Have you seen Truffle do that? Kind of, sometimes. So if you wanted to get rid of that 
and you wanted to train a perfect sit where everything's all nice and square, you would only reward the perfect sits. When he didn't do it, so when you said sit and he sat down and the back leg popped out, you go, oh, nice try, and you'd withhold the reward. So that's negative punishment because you're removing something pleasant from the environment. So he doesn't get the treat. And that will make him want to work harder to figure out how he gets the treat next time. This is how Helen works with me. This is the, this is the glass of red wine, you know, holding oh, it back until I've made a nice dinner. Oh, it's not dogs. <laughs> okay, cool. So your approach is a force-free approach. Is that what, is that what you call it? Science-based, reward-based, force-free. What was the first dog in space called? I have no idea. Lyca. And Lyca we do. Lyca. <laughs> what, what breed is Lyca? Lyca was a stray mongrel and it went oh. up in Sputnik 2. Now, of course, we know what happened to Lyca because the Sputnik went up, didn't come back down again. Yeah. Well, not in a hole. So, so it was a one-way ticket, I'm afraid, for Lyca. Poor Lyca. That's really sad. Right. So you've got your book and approach. So are we going for your other item or your personal yeah, animal going, next? I'm going for my other item because it's one thing that no reward-based trainer can live without. It's food. Dog food, human food. Either. So I would be taking a nice range of treats because I don't know what this dog's going to work for. I don't know what this dog's going to like. And so I would take some really nice, good quality kibble, dry food. I would take some nice sort of moist treats that can be like shop-bought moist treats that are what I would say medium value and then I would take a veritable buffet of high value which could be specially made dog dog pate so dog treats as opposed to human treats but then human treats that work well chicken steak tuna sausage frankfurter, cheese, all the delicious things. What's Truffle's favourite? Yeah, of all of those, would Truffle prefer a frankfurter or um, some cheese? What do you reckon? Probably both. Well, he can't have both. He's got one or the other. He's got two hands. He's going to have the left cheese. hand. with. Yeah, I think he'd go for cheese as well. He does like a bit of cheese. Not unlike the two people at this end of the microphone. Got to be honest. We both like a bit of cheese, don't we? Uh, yeah. Um, we'd perform like a dog if we, uh, yeah, we'd perform, we'd perform um, well if you gave us some cheese as well, Emma. Right, well, and I was going to ask you, you know, if you were going to really throw the boat out where you'd go, but then not sure you want to promote a single supplier of your treats. My go-to is um, a great company called JR Pet Products. I'm not affiliated, uh, but they just make this amazing pate. And what I like about it is that it's it's 100 percent whatever flavor it is. So if it's salmon, it's 100 percent salmon. If it's duck, it's 100 percent duck. So because, yeah, cheese is great. And sometimes cheese is the only thing that's going to cut the mustard if we're struggling with a dog and we need their attention. But a lot of dogs don't tolerate cheese terribly well. They struggle with the lactose. Of course, it's not great for them because it's as fattening for them as it is for us. Um, if you've got a dog who's susceptible to pancreatitis, then the last thing you want to be feeding it is a fatty food. Um, 
I've done a I've done a taste test with my Alfie with cheese versus pate. I thought he'd go for cheese and he went for the pate. So I really like it because dogs really like it and it it it's part of their diet then rather than you know an extra that might put on weight in a bad way. Well, how hungry would you have to be <laughs> before you'd smear some of JR's pate? What did you oh, say they were JR called? Oh. Yeah, how hungry would you have to be before you smeared some of that on a piece of toast? See, if you asked my other half that, he'd go, oh, I'd eat it anyway. Richard tries every single dog treat that's going. I might have to be more selective because it depends what I could stomach. I, I could, I would, I might, I might go for the duck or the beef. And the thing is, is that actually you've made it sound really tempting by adding smear it on toast. <laughs> so now that's starting to sound actually quite appealing. And I reckon that I wouldn't actually have to be that desperate, but I'd do it for a fiver. <laughs> well, or, or the other question is how drunk would you have to be? Um, and I'd throw in a gherkin, that, you know, you could have a gherkin with it as well. Nice. I'm not, I'm, oh, I'm not no an animal. Gherkins. gherkins are wrong, gherkins are wrong, no gherkins. Emma, has a dog ever bitten you when you were training it? I got bitten yesterday. I was very lucky that I was wearing my big winter boots and it was only a little chihuahua and it was very half-hearted. Normally, you wouldn't put yourself in the situation where you could get bitten. If you suspect that a dog might bite or the owners are saying the dog doesn't like visitors or anything like that, you would put preventative measures in place to keep yourself safe. And also, if a dog feels that they've got to bite, then they're feeling pretty desperate and you wouldn't want to put the dog in that position. In this case, it was a lovely couple that I've been working with for a very, very long time who rescued a very, very traumatised little chihuahua who's had a very very sad upbringing and normally when I've got a dog who's afraid of visitors as this dog was I would I would do most things over zoom but we've been doing a lot over zoom they were absolutely desperate to see me and so I went out and they had the dog on the harness and lead and it just got to one stage during the session where they said well you know is it okay if I let her go and see what she does and I said yeah that's that's fine you know, she's that big. My hands are on the table. My feet are under the table. She's not going to do much damage. So, yeah, I got bitten yesterday. But it's not a frequent event. Your last item is a, a person or a, an animal. So mm. who, who are you taking? So I could say that I'd, I'd take another dog if I felt it would be beneficial. Quite often, it's quite handy to have what you call a stooge dog for another dog to work with. But on the basis that I don't know the client, I don't know the dog, taking another dog is not a wise idea at this moment in time. So I would take with me one of my mentors because when you're doing behavior modification, particularly if it's a behavior modification or even a training approach, an extra pair of eyes and another 20 years of experience is always really, really valuable to have next to you. Because I, I always say doing behavior modification is like, it's like being a murder detective. Because the only person that can tell you who did it and how 
can't speak to you. And it's exactly the same with the dog. So you kind of have a little bit of a standard thing of ruling out basics and obvious things first. And you go, right, let's eliminate that, 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 that. Then let's see where we are. And then you just get sent down avenues and they might be dead ends. They might be booby trapped, anything. And if you've got somebody else to bounce off and another pair of eyes that, because, you know, when you go out and see a client, you're, you're trying to look at the dog. You're trying to gauge how the owner is. You're trying to answer all the questions and, and have a chat about what's going on. And another pair of eyes to go, did you notice that when the owner did that, the dog did that? Or when the dog did that, the owner did the other? And little things that fit together a story. They're little clues that don't necessarily get given to you by the owner, but they're little observations that you can miss just from going, oh, let me note that down. And then the moment's been and gone. So an experienced pair of eyes to have with you and then to mull things over and thrash things out afterwards would be a lovely treat. I'm going to pick you up on something you said. Yeah. You said that like the dead body when you're the detective, a dog can't speak. But I I disagree. I know Truffle Yeah, sorry. Yeah, Truffle speaks. speaks. Sorry, I yeah. know. Sorry about that. And I know how he speaks. Uh, yeah. So he speaks like that. He speaks. He's, yeah. oh, all right. Are you all right. No, Dan, Danny right? Dyer. Yeah. yeah. Danny Dyer the dog. Yeah. Yeah. Does Alfie talk? Obviously. And, and how does Alfie talk? Alfie is, is very much like, uh, mother, mother, check there aren't any crocodiles in the river because I want to go in and I want to have a swim. That's how Alfie talks. Yeah. So we know that our dogs talk. But obviously, they don't want to let on. So no. Truffle, when, no. when I caught him, he then looked back at me as if to say, nothing, I wasn't doing no, anything. Didn't, didn't say anything. What was the first dog breed? That, I think we might argue about this, because if we look at how our dogs evolved, you will probably find that there were different dogs all over the world not all over the world, in certain pockets of the world where we had dogs that were used to do certain jobs. Breed just talks about what the dog looks like. Type of dog says, what do I do for a job? And then the looks will depend. So for, so for instance, if you had a dog who seemed to be remarkably good at guarding livestock and the dog lived in a colder country, then you've got a guarding dog with a nice big thick heavy coat who looks like a Bernese mountain dog for instance and I think it would depend in the world where the dog was as to what job the dog did which meant what what breed it would be does that make sense what have you got Amelia tell me what you've got Saluki don't believe it I think that there were like a Sulkfist dog and then another dog because then they have a baby and that was a cross and then that one had kind of like found another one. I don't think dogs breed, naturally don't breed with another type, do they? In, in the wild, they don't care. Oh, really? So, of course, we have our female dogs who generally come into season a couple of times a year. Our male dogs will mate all year round and they won't care who they mate with. If they, if they can mate, they'll mate. So a female dog could have seven puppies in her litter and they could all be fathered by different dogs. 
How amazing is that? So it just means that then there's greater chance of survival. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So unlike when you have triplets, which obviously all has the same father in a human, you're telling me that a dog, I've got to be careful how I phrase this, but a dog, a lady dog can have seven different occasions where a male dog says hello and then have a different puppy from each of those hello moments. It has been known. Wow. Amazing. Busy life being a lady dog Mm. in the wild. And of course, this is why, you know, because they, they're mating all year and the, the females are in season twice a year, as opposed to a wolf, which is only once a year, when dogs will just mate with anything and anybody and spread everything around, it's why we, the, the, dog, the dog population is massive, huge. Just to be clear, uh, if a human has two separate, that's not how you get twins, right? No, let's move on. Uh, that's, not, that's not my area of expertise, I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I want two other questions. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure how long this podcast is going to be, but uh, the answer is probably different depending on the breed. So Truffle loves coming to my business park where I've got this office, uh, mainly because it's full of squirrels. So we call it Squizland is what this is called. Yes, yes. If squizzles, Truffle yeah. caught a squizzer, what mm. do you think would happen? It's a really interesting question because we're talking about the predatory motor pattern. And the whole of the predatory motor pattern, dogs have the whole predatory motor pattern. So that's orient, which means basically sniff it out and figure where it is. Eye, so clap eyes on it, stalk it, chase it, grab bite it, kill bite. So you know when you see dogs shaking their toys, that's the kill bite. Then they dissect it. So if you have a dog that is happily dissect, Alfie will dissect all of his toys within about 10 seconds flat. Yeah, Truffy likes doing that. And then it's eat. Now, for the most part, eat has been bred out of our dogs. Some people would say that dissect has been bred out, but I kind of go, well, I'm going to argue that because my dog can dissect a toy. If he caught an injured animal where there was already an an entrance in there, I wouldn't mind betting that he might have a go at dissecting it. But it it depends. I did. I did. Alfie caught um, Alfie caught a pheasant. I was about 18 months ago and I, I didn't I didn't even know the pheasant was there. It wasn't that far away from me. And Alfie was clearly taken by surprise. He pinned the pheasant down. And, but he, he, the the wings were going like this and he's going, oh my God, this is massive. How do I do this? And I'm looking and I'm thinking, I should probably call him back, but there's something about the scientific research in this that I'm quite, how far is this going to go? And by the time I was wondering how far it was going to go and whether Alfie would actually grab it and kill it, uh, the pheasant had flown off. So uh, it's hard to know. If he did catch one, he might hang around there with it in his mouth going, well, I've caught it, but I don't know what to do with it now. Can't dissect it. I don't know. Or if the squirrel is injured, because let's face it, if Truffle caught the squirrel, chances are there might be an injury. And if he's into dissection, he might manage to dissect it. But again, he might go... Mm. 
not as good as a pate, you'd be like, I don't like this. No, exactly. Give me some JR pate. Get me some JR pate. We'll be all over it. I like people who listen to these podcasts to get a useful tip. So I know I've got a few questions there for you, but can you give us a tip? If, if a dog gets something in its mouth, we had this the other day, Truffle got something. Oh, he got a cake wrapper that someone had left around and we wanted to get it out of his mouth and trying to force his mouth apart. Mm. That's almost impossible. In fact, then he actually took a go at Helen to say, get out. This is my yeah. cake wrapper. Yeah. What, what should, and I don't know if maybe there's different approaches for different dogs, but what should you do to get something out of a dog's mouth that is going to hurt it? Let's face it. Maybe it's going to hurt it if it eats it. What do you do? Your, your first top tip is to never leave anything around that's going to damage the dog. <laughs> Prevention is the first thing that we pay attention to here, but life is life. If they pick something up, your best thing to do, and it goes against every instinct in your body, your best thing to do is to just go, oh, what have I got over here? As you walk to the fridge and examine the fridge and you just pretend that whatever they've got is really not that important. Because the moment you put value on what they've got in their mouth, they are going to clamp down even harder. And by going for the jaws and putting your hands on the jaws, you've told Truffle, I need to guard stuff that's in my mouth. I might need to come out and see you if that carries on. But especially when you've got a cocker spaniel who is designed to put stuff in their mouth and not let go, your best bet is to just go, it's not important. Because the danger is if they think that it is important, the next thing that happens is they swallow it. Yeah, yeah. Because they go, oh, I mean, we've seen it. I, I, I know that there's a film or a comedy series or something out there, or you've seen it where people are under so much threat, somebody wants a piece of paper and somebody just shoves it in their mouth and go, they're gone, can't have it. And dogs will do that. And you want to avoid them feeling so threatened that they have to swallow it. So you just walk away and go, nah, not important. I'm going to the fridge and I'm going to get some cheese out. Or I'm gonna keep a squirrel in the house. So when he gets something in his mouth, I'll just get the squirrel out. And off he goes after the squizzer. It's a perfect solution. Yeah, yeah. Can't see anything wrong with that. I okay, look, we must <laughs> we must move on. So you've got your backpack packed. You've got your mentor yeah. going with you. Yeah. Sometimes people sneak things into our backpack that we don't want to be there. So what's the one thing you would want to make sure is not in that backpack? I don't want anything that relates to dominance theory. Pack leader, alpha, bin it, bin it, bin it, bin it. Get it out useless pointless waste of time damaging okay so i'm not the uh, you're telling me that i'm not the alpha leader for truffle i'm sorry you are not the pack leader you are not the alpha you are truffle's slave and that's all there is to it <laughs> <laughs> i'm the one with the collar on being led around by truffle am i exactly. there's an image we all know where you stand in that <laughs> your cheese provider david that's all you are yeah. okay right well and where do you hope that you are or are not going on this fictional gig Okay, so I don't want to go to a client who another trainer referred to this as a meatloaf client, as in, I'll do anything for love, but I won't do that. And it's the client that <laughs> I loved it. I can't remember who it was, but I've shamelessly stolen it. 
because you can sometimes turn up to a client who says, oh, my dog's doing this, my dog's doing the other, my dog's got a problem with that. You know, what can I do to nip the behavior in the bud, stop them doing this, that and the other? And you turn up and you tell them and they go, yeah, that's quite awkward or that's not really convenient. And that's really hard to work with. That's where you have to have some really, really, really good interpersonal skills. You've, you've got to be able to sell why you've you've got to find that thread and I'm not really into sales my other half is I'm I'm not but you've got to find that thread you've got to find the pain and go okay but this is what we can do as a result of this or this is what will happen if we don't do this sometimes you can't get through to those clients and you try everything you possibly can you explain it in every way that you can and you lose the client. I've worked with people for all of my working career. I've done personal training. I've done management training. I've done coaching. I've, I've done everything to do with people. And if people don't want to make that change, yes, you can come away and go, well, I tried my best. I'm disappointed. You do reflect on what you could have done better or what you should have done or whatever. But Ultimately, you think, well, that's the person's choice. I did everything I could. It's the person's choice. It's down to them. The problem is, is that when you lose a client, you're walking away from the dog and the dog doesn't get a say. And the dog and you know that the dog's welfare is going to suffer. As a personal trainer, if somebody didn't want to do the exercises that I gave them and, and do the nutritional plan that I gave them, and at the end of 10 weeks, they've only lost five pounds, you go, well, it's down to you, isn't it? You know, that's your choice. It's your body. It's the upshot of what your decisions are. But when it's a dog, it's really hard to leave that when you know that you could make a difference to that dog's life, but you can't get through to the client. So that's why I don't want to be heading. I like working with clients who get on board with you, understand what you're asking, or even if they don't understand, they'll ask questions and they'll do their level best to help their dog. Do owners really look like their dogs? Uh, sometimes they really do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I can't, I can't go into any more detail. Thank you very much, Emma. So, before we end, where can people find out more about Emma Barnett and So Help Me Dog? They can look at my website, www.sohelpmedog.co.uk, or they can find me on Facebook, So Help Me Dog. I try and post regularly on Facebook. I'm not very good at it, but I think Facebook certainly gives it uh, an idea as to my approach and how I am and who I am. Okay, well... Thank you so much, Emma, for being our guest on The Coach's Backpack. Thank you. Last one. Up to what age can a dog be taught? So you can teach any dog of any age, provided as a dog gets older, they can get the same as us. They can suffer from Alzheimer's and things like that and dementia. And so there is something called canine cognitive decline. And so if your dog suffered from canine cognitive decline, then you would struggle to train them. But other than that, 
you can train a dog of any age. Thank you so much. Uh, you're welcome. And thank you for joining us on this episode of The Coach's Backpack. If you would like extra goodies such as free tools, offers, further info about our guests, and maybe even the odd peek inside their actual backpack, sign up to our mailing list at thecoachesbackpack.com. And don't forget to follow the podcast too. See you next time.